Thanks, Annabelle. Uh, just put a little reminder for myself on this slide, which says, don't forget Q&A. Can I encourage you? Don't forget Q&A. We're going to have Q&A at, uh, at the end of this message. Uh, and that's the reminder to, uh, to keep thinking about that. How about I pray and uh, we'll dive into uh, this last part of our series on the book of Philippians. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you uh, for this opportunity that we've had in the last term to turn our attention to this letter from Paul. We thank you, Father, for the reminder about joy and hope, about godly Christian conduct. And we pray tonight, as we bring it into land, Father, that you would help us to continue to be challenged by the standard that you set for us and assisted by the help that you offer. We pray, Father, that that might lead to changed lives that bring glory to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I want to talk tonight uh, about satisfaction. And uh, I think uh, Jeff actually had uh, Mick Jagger up on the screen not too many weeks ago. Uh, how satisfied are Australians? Well, according to the, uh, the World Happiness Index, who knew there was a World Happiness Index, but there is one, uh, and according to the World Happiness Index, Australia, out of all the countries in the world, uh, comes in at number nine. Uh, with the somewhat impenetrable number 7.284 as the, uh, the number uh, that we've come in in the happiness index. Uh, so we're number nine. Uh, I think it was behind, uh, oh, I looked at it this, this afternoon, Finland? Norway, it was Norway. Sorry? What were you saying, Carrie? It's not Switzerland. Uh, Switzerland's up there. No, it's Norway. You're right, exactly right. It was Norway at the top of the, uh, top of the chart. Even though we're a little bit warmer, apparently the Norwegians, happy, happy folk. Uh, there's another institute here called the Australian Unity Wellbeing Index, which I think is an uh, a, uh, index put together to promote the name of um, Australian Unity, which is an um, insurance um, company. But, uh, but what they do uh, is they say, this is the golden triangle of happiness. So you've got to love what the world has to say on these things, so we should listen, shouldn't we? What is the golden triangle of happiness? Well, it includes financial control, a sense of purpose, and good relationships. Now, that's not too far off the track, is it? Uh, financial control makes sense. If we're on top of our finances, it means that we've got some idea of what's coming in and what's going out. It probably means that we have a budget of some kind. Okay? Uh, sense of purpose, uh, they say that you're doing something that contributes, and they include gardening in this. Okay? Um, I think Kara's, ha Kara's having a great moment in this, aren't you, Kara, uh, on gardening at the moment? Um, and, then, and then relationships are self-evident, aren't they? If, if all the relationships in my, my life are going to hell in a handbasket, I'm, I'm not likely to feel very well in myself. So uh, financial control, sense of purpose, relationships. That kind of makes sense, I think. Uh, it's not the whole story, but it's certainly part of the story. And yet, despite the fact that Australia, as a country, on the whole, is right up there in happiness, we know, as we saw last week, that these things still plague our country. So, two million people in Australia live with anxiety. A million people in Australia live with depression. And this terrible statistic here, nearly eight Australians take their own lives every day, six of whom are men. Now, that is an extraordinary figure. When we look a little bit closer, we see that one in three women and one in five men are likely to experience anxiety at some point in their lifetimes. One in six women and one in eight men are likely to experience depression. So there is a general sense of happiness, but there is a very weighty part of our lives that actually isn't uh, happy. So, so why aren't we content? 
Why is it that even with all this happiness around us, we're often not content? Here are a few starters. I want to introduce you to a guy that I, um, I met in my research, a guy here called Barry Schwartz. And um, as I said to the guys this morning, Barry Schwartz is up there doing a TED Talk. Do you guys know TED Talks? Okay. When most people do a TED Talk, they are looking schmick-o, all right? Barry is a psychologist kind of guy. He's, he's in his zone, right? So he's so comfortable. He's up here in his favorite T-shirt. He's literally in shorts with sneakers and white socks. That's, that's how he's doing his TED Talk. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, that's fine. I just love how comfortable in his skin he is. He wrote a book in 2004 called The Paradox of Choice. Have you heard of this? The Paradox of Choice? Essentially, his theory is economics says the more choices you have, the happier you'll be. Barry's theory is, the more choices we have, the less happy we are. And what he did was he took a survey of his local supermarket and he said he found 187 different salad dressings. He said there's no possible way that any human being can evaluate all of those choices. And so what happens is we're left to look at these salad dressings and go, is this one better than that one? I'm not sure. Eventually, you have to choose one of them. You take it home, and unless it's absolutely perfect, what happens is you think, I could have chosen the 132nd one, and that would have been better. He said multiplying choice leads to paralysis. We actually find it we're unable to make choices because of how many decisions that are presented before us. And in the end, more choice leads to a sadder outcome. In, in some sense, it would be easier to be in a Soviet country back in the day when you had bread and water or milk or whatever it was, and you just that was it. There was no branding of anything. You just get the one that, that is there. And uh, he says that this choice paradox spills over actually into our social lives as well. Nobody ever makes plans because something better might turn up, and the result is that no one ever does anything. Okay, overstated for dramatic effect, but you get the idea. So I say, uh, hey, can you come and uh, join me for a sausage sizzle next week? And the answer universally is, uh, can I just, can I get back to you, right? Mostly because we, we, we've got so much on, we've, we've actually got to have a look. We don't know. But secondly, because, oh, gee, I'm not sure if I want to commit this early in the week. I mean, heck, someone, might, someone else might ask me and I might miss out on the other thing. So we have this amazing thing, which some of you will know. Too much choice paralyzes us and it equals a thing called FOMO. Do we know FOMO? Fear of missing out. FOMO, fear of missing out. FOMO is a modern disease, I must say. Uh, it wasn't around, I don't think, before. Um, but FOMO is a thing that arises from having too many choices. We have a fear of missing out. He also says that we are, have another impact in our lives brought about by social media. Uh, Facebook, for example. Here's what he says. He says, if you're comparing yourself to people on Facebook, well, everyone is the superstar on Facebook. The result is that your life is duller and more boring and than everyone else around you. And so what he says is, our modern age will present the fact everyone, everyone creates their image of themselves on social media, whether it's on Instagram or wherever you, whenever you're doing it. We curate that. We create a face. Not everything goes on it. You don't go, I was running late for the bus and I missed it and so I had to sit down for half an hour. That, that doesn't generally make it, although actually it might make it as you kind of Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the point is we all edit, right? But what we never think about when we look at the whole world of social profiles out there, we never think that everyone else is editing too. And so we take their profiles on face value, right? Everyone is always at the beach in Bali having a great time, right? All the time. 
well, that's a lie, isn't it? But what happens is it leads to this intense sense of my life is inadequate. Too much social media distorts us and it leads to profound dissatisfaction. Profound dissatisfaction. I think Barry's onto something. I want to show you another reason why we might be dissatisfied. Okay, very good. Okay, so don't, don't worry, that's some, some place in the UK. But here's the thing that caught my attention, right? Here's their slogan. If we don't sell it, you don't need it. Is that how we define needs in our life? We don't define needs by whatever the range has on sale, do we? And we can, we can accept that that's stupid, right? But what we continually do is we mess up the definition of needs and wants. We often talk about our needs in Uh, Sorry, our wants in need language. Our wants in need language. And so we confuse wants and needs, and it leads to anxiety and exhaustion. See, if if I'm always striving for things that are only wants, and I treat them all the time with the energy of a need, I'm just going to be exhausted, because there's too many bits and pieces that I want. So we mix up needs and wants, and it leads to a great sense of dissatisfaction. Uh, third reason um, is something like this. Um, <laughs> we all want to move to the Shire. No, uh, I, I think the logic is it's, it's the grass is always greener. Have you heard this before? The grass is always greener. If only I was in a better house, then all my life would be sorted out. If only I was in a better job, everything would be sorted out. If only I was on my holiday that I'm eventually going to get to, then I'll be right. If only I could take that course then. Everything is lived not here, right? We, we, we imagine a better world that's only a couple of decisions away and we live there. And what happens when we live in the possible world is that we become immensely dissatisfied with the current world. Is this ringing true for anyone? So here's the thing. The grass is always greener there means that we are never present here. We are never present here. And that is a tragedy for the people around us It's a tragedy for your commitment to the things that you're actually doing right now because we always do them with a sense of dissatisfaction. There's a fourth reason as well, and maybe some of us have access to this. Here's this lighthouse in the middle of the ocean, right? And I think the idea is I don't need help from anyone, right? Here am I. I'm in the middle of the ocean. I'm totally on my own. Just leave me alone. I'm going to be totally self-sufficient. My idea is that if I can accrue enough resources, enough control of my life, I'll be totally okay because I won't need anyone else. I'm in charge. And the only irony with this is it's immediately evident if you lived in a lighthouse that you can't be self-sufficient. Is that right? The boat has to turn up regularly and restock you, otherwise you're going to die. Okay, but but I think that's a perfect analogy. I'm going to put my lighthouse right in the middle of the ocean and I'll be totally self-sufficient until you run out of supplies and then you need somebody else to help you out. The the lie is the myth of self-sufficiency leads to arrogance and atheism. If you think that you've got enough money to not need God you won't need God anymore. You'll just decide my bank balance has got me. It'll lead to arrogance and lead to atheism. You'll jettison God because you think you can manage it on your own. That is a path to dissatisfaction. I want to read you what I've called the uh, Oren Park verse. It's the Oren Park verse. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Every time I read this, I think it's talking about Oren Park. Now, 
just for everyone's understanding, it's not talking about Oran Park. It was written when Moses was about to go into the promised land. But here's the warning that God gives those people. And I think you'll understand why it's the Oran Park verse. I'll read it to you because it's, it's small up there. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Does this make sense? Do you see why this is a challenge for us? When everything, when you get the things that you want, the possibility is that we jettison God and think we got here on our own. It's a danger and that is why we need to hear what Paul has to say to us tonight. So what can we do? We need to see God's plan for contentment. And God's plan for contentment is beautiful, but it can't be found without him. So I want to talk about contentment tonight. I'd love you to open up your Bibles to that passage we had in front of us. So Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses uh, 10 to 13 for us. Philippians chapter 4 and verses 10 to 13. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? The first thing to note is that Paul is praising the Philippians. He said, no, no other church shared in, in helping me out. You guys decided to help me. I, I praise God for your concern expressed towards me. Remember where Paul was in jail? And they showed concern for him. So he praises them for that. But then we see him talk about this, uh, this fact that he's come, come to be content. And we hear him use this language, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And we could think to ourselves, oh, sure, Paul, it's a great preacher's flourish right? You can be content whatever the circumstances. And we go, Paul, we know that you've been enjoying your life in Double Bay, okay? You have a short commute to the office where your cushy job only goes for four hours a day and you sit on your yacht in between. Paul, you can preach about being content, but you don't know anything about real suffering. That's not Paul though, is it? Paul's the guy who was stoned for his faith. He's the guy who lost everything that he treasured because he associated himself with Christ. He's the guy who was made impoverished by his faith. He's also the guy who was probably put up in Lydia's house in Philippi and lived a really good life while he was in Philippi. Whatever is his circumstance, Paul isn't talking hypothetically. It's not just an idea to him. He says, I have been in plenty and I've been in need. I know both of these personally. And I'm telling you, I found the secret to be content. So we should listen to him. And I want you to see, he, he says something extraordinary. He says how to be content both in need and in plenty. So someone says that, uh, someone said, uh, those people who say money can't buy you happiness. He said, <laughs> he said, why don't you give me some money and I'll figure it out. In other words, just pour the money on me. I'll, I'll work out where the happiness can be bought. 
I don't know at the moment. Give me more money and I'll figure it out. It's not like that. Paul says both in need and in plenty, he knows how to be content. And so I'm going to tell you secret number one from this passage. Paul says he's found a secret. He's found something that the world does not know. Have a look with me at verse 13 again. It says this. He says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What's the all this? Um, some of you guys might know uh, in the NBA, a guy called Steph Curry. Now, just, I'm just going to chuck this out. Does anybody know who Steph Curry is? I see one hand at the back. Two, three, four, five. Okay, a couple of you do. Okay, Steph Curry is probably the best basketballer on the planet at the moment. Um, Nike turned down a deal with him for shoes because he wanted to put 413 on his shoes. Nike said, you can't do that. And so he went with a mob called Under Armour and apparently has quadrupled their business since he was with them. What's this 413? It's this verse. Steph Curry has on his shoes, stitched into his shoes, all the shoes that, that get sold in his name, 413. Why? Well, I, I suspect he's taking this as a physical challenge. Personally, he's in the NBA, right? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And there's something about that which is beautiful. But I think there's actually something even more powerful here. Paul isn't actually saying he can climb every mountain because of the strength of Jesus. He's saying, I can be content in poverty and riches. I can do all that because of him who gives me strength. Now, that's more accessible for us, isn't it? What do I need help with? I need help with being content. And he's saying the power to find contentment is found in Jesus. Is found in Jesus. So contentment is for those who are in Jesus, and it is from Jesus. It's for those in Jesus, and it is from Jesus. And I want to ask, are you looking to Jesus to be content? Are you looking to Jesus to be content? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. Of course we are. Get on to the next point. We're all looking to Jesus to be content. And I'd say to you, really? Are we really looking to Jesus to be content? Because I suspect we're hungering after one of those wants in a need way. I really need to be the best at this sport that I'm playing at the moment. I really need to be, if only I could be, at the top of my game in my exams. If only I could be the person who's paid off their mortgage before all their friends. If only I could have my kids in the best school. If only I could finally save up enough money to provide, you know, persuade my wife to get me a boat so I can go fishing every weekend. Whatever it is. Are we looking for contentment in Jesus or in stuff? Because God is saying here the only path to contentment is in Jesus. Everything else will disappoint us. He goes on and he talks about stuff in a very financial way. He talks about a ledger, a, a set of books, uh, some accounting and I want you to think about this because he is talking about money, but he's talking about more than money as well. And here's an ancient uh, accounting book. Let's have a look at verses 14 to 19. He says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I sent out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment. I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied 
Now that I've received from Epaphroditus, it gives you scent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. See, what's he saying here? First of all, that, that bit I mentioned, there's only one church that helped out. The Philippians, Paul loved the Philippians, right? All the other churches went, Paul, we love that you shared the gospel with us. Okay, thank you very much. Chuff off. And the Philippians said, oh man, you're going somewhere else. Who's looking after you? Can we send some money to help you out? And so Paul writes in this really friendly way because he genuinely loves them. But they genuinely helped him as well in a very practical way. Only one church helped him out. We're also told here that there's a heavenly ledger. Did you see that? Have a look at verse, verse 17. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting to think through. What he's saying is you can give money on earth and God is actually doing the other side of the transaction in heaven. Right? God's actually doing another transaction in heaven. He's putting something against your account in the heavenly realm. Now, lest we think that that means if I give lots of money on earth, I'll be rich in heaven. I'll be wearing the good suit and I'll have in the suitcase full of gold and I'll be laughing at you in your little shack in heaven. Not what it's saying. The thing that'll go to your account is praise from God on the day that you enter glory. Well done, good and faithful servant, is the reward that will be put against your ledger. It's not that we're going to be richer in that sense, but we will be affirmed by our God. And so he says, but, but what you do on earth does matter in heaven. And then he says this wonderful thing that generosity smells good. Did you see that there? The, the gift that Epaphroditus brought, he says in uh, the end of verse 18, they're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice to God. Does that mean he burnt the money? No, good, good answer. It doesn't mean he burnt the money. He did not burn the money. But what it means is the sacrificial heart that you have, that act of generosity comes up before God like a sacrifice. It smells pleasing to him. It's like the aroma of a barbie on a Saturday afternoon. God loves your generosity. It smells good to him. So put another generosity on the barbie. See, it's all organized around this idea of the gospel, right? So uh, we see Paul was in jail. We saw the Philippians who were in suffering and unrest. All of them were looking to Jesus. And then what we've seen is that the Philippians showed generosity to Paul. And then we're told that God will do something extraordinary. He will show generosity to the Philippians. You ready for the second secret? Great. The second secret is this. Secret number two is this. Have a listen to this extraordinary verse. 4.19 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God will meet all of your needs according to his riches, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, what do we immediately think? Hey, God, but I, I need a X, Y, and Z at the moment. And all I'd say to you is, did you define wants or needs right? God said he'll provide all of your needs according to his riches in glory. Okay? Now, how rich is God in glory? His supply of cash is infinite, right? Uh, the, the, the psalmist says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And we go, well, there are less hills with cattle around here. So maybe God's getting a bit poorer. God's infinitely rich. And he says, he will supply what you need according to his riches in glory. 
here's the wonderful thing I want you to know in the second secret. Satisfaction, being satisfied, is for the generous in Jesus. If you're generous in Jesus, you'll find satisfaction from God's generosity. He'll supply what you need according to his riches. So are you looking for God to provide? Are you looking for God to provide your satisfaction or are you slavishly working away to make it your own? What do we need to change? Let me just think with you for a second. What, what do we need to change? If this is true, if those two secrets are true, what do we need to change? So number one, okay, number one, very important, okay. Do I want this or do I need this? Okay, so I want, okay, good. It, was it a wrestle for anyone, okay? No, 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 I need it. Okay, well, here's, here's the first thing that we need to change. We need to change our language, and what we need to do is we need to correctly identify needs and wants. What is in the want category and what is in the need category? It's okay to say, I desperately want this. That's owning your desire in your heart, right? But it's wrong to say, I desperately need it. Fundamentally untrue. So we need to change our language of needs and wants very carefully. Paul said, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He said, I've learned the secret because I know the difference. I know when I have a want deficit, okay? And I know when I have a need and God always meets my needs. Not all wants need to be met. Not all wants need to be met. Point number two, we want to think about where we're seeking. Are we looking to Jesus or ourselves? So when it comes to seeking satisfaction, am I absolutely focused on Jesus or am I seeking myself? Jesus, uh, Paul said earlier in Philippians 1.21, he said this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we think, sure, Paul, you're a bit of a nutter, right? Come and sit in my seat tonight in Oran Park at New Life at Night I'm going home to, a, a, or I'm going to have some supper first, and then I'll go home to Elevances, something a little bit later on, uh, as I sit down in my nice air-conditioned home and I chill out tonight, right? In what way is my life to live is Christ and to die is gain? Well, to live is being comfortable and to die would be inconvenient. Wouldn't it? And so here's the thing. If we are seeking satisfaction in this life, we'll continue to be dissatisfied. The only way to switch on to satisfaction is to go, God, I'm for you and your purpose. I love Jesus and what he's on about in the world more than building my kingdom. I'm here for you and yours, and that is the path to satisfaction. Only Jesus can give contentment. Only Jesus. Point number three, this will be a challenge for some of us. Some of us might still be at home and we might be on not enough uh, pocket money. What do you call it today? Not pocket money. Allowance. There we go. Good. That's a much better word, isn't it? We're on enough allowance that maybe we don't have all of our uh, financial freedom that we would like. But some of us are actually doing okay. And so we need to think about our situation. What do we do with abundance? What do I do if I'm not in need every night? Apparently, the, the line is that if you have spare change in your wallet, you are richer than 80% of the population of the world. So what do we do with our abundance here in Australia? That Timothy passage, we're not going to camp out on it tonight, but it is really, really punchy. In, um, in 1 Timothy 
uh, chapter 6, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And then it says this, and I'm going to read it carefully because it's got two commands in it. And it's speaking to rich people, right? Now, I'm just going to let you in a little secret. Most of us, most of us, not all of us perhaps, most of us are rich. Certainly in global standards, certainly in historical standards. So have a listen to what it, the God says to you tonight. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so what? which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. You want to know life that's truly life? Of course we do. That's the path to satisfaction, isn't it? It's about generosity, It's about being rich in good deeds. It's about not being arrogant and hoping in wealth. If you want to get this right, we want to be people who place no hope in wealth, but we're rich towards God and mankind around us. Here's my conclusion. Want for less. Want for less. You'll be in need for nothing. Want for less, you'll be in need for nothing. Who guarantees that crazy statement? God, who can supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I've been praying the Lord's Prayer recently. Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? Um, I've been praying it recently. I found it quite convenient and helpful. Who knew? It actually reminds me of some stuff. It reminds me to expect from God my every day. It reminds me I should be building his kingdom, not my own. It reminds me whose glory should be on the front of my agenda. So we're going to finish with praying the Lord's Prayer. And as we do it, I want you to listen to kingdoms, dependence, and glory. Let's pray this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. That's brilliant, isn't it? Keep praying that one. Great path to satisfaction. Well, what I want to uh, do now is to see if there are any questions that arise from that and uh, give you a chance to ask them. So does anyone have a question to follow up uh, tonight? Ooh, we were getting in a good zone there before. We were asking questions. Has anyone got one there going, oh, no, I, I won't ask it, but... Uh, All right. <laughs> Hi, Zachy, I see your hand. You can ask me later. Is that okay, bud? Yeah, good boy. All right, no, that, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, I'm just going to encourage you, uh, do not merely listen to the word. Let's try and put that into practice. That would be my encouragement tonight. Uh, we are going to sing about the one who supplies all that we need because of his riches. And uh, it's found in Jesus and only in him. So how about we um, get the band up here and they can lead us.